all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Our goal at Everyday Tech is to keep your technology not only working, but working for you. I'm the host, Abram Nanny, and you can join me and my friends Wednesday mornings at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Or search Everyday Tech on your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app. This is Southern Remedy on NPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This is your program to call in for any type of medical questions that you might have. That's right. This is your chance to ask those questions that have been burning in your brain and on your heart to ask. Maybe it's a new symptom of something that you've developed or it might be a new medication that you're asking about side effects or how does it work, or maybe a new diagnosis or a diagnosis that hasn't quite been uh, uh, pinned on whatever you have yet. Or if you're not able to call, we realize that some of our listeners may not be able to call during the listening hour. You can always email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, it's a chilly morning this morning. I had a little bit of frost at my house. Maybe some of you did too. I think the low was right around 30 last night. But um, it's sort of a welcome pleasure. I'm still enjoying the cool weather changes after that long, hot summer, and hopefully we'll still get some uh, some regular rain uh, to uh, to replenish what we've uh, lost there. But uh, do uh, think about all the different changes when things get cold. We have lots of health-related issues, usually emergency issues that – uh, around that transition time, particularly here in Mississippi, because we're not as accustomed to lower temperatures. We can still have some of the, the dangerous effects of those. So think about things like space heaters and burns from those if you have young kids or older people around uh, that fall on those, depending on what, on what type of a heater, it, if it, it's a, a sort of an old-time oil, oil-based heaters, which work well and do are very efficient, but uh, can cause some problems sometimes. And then, of course, fire risk. So just make sure that you take your precautions there around those uh, around those devices and uh, certainly want to keep everybody safe while you're keeping warm. Um, and uh, burn bans been, have been lifted. Uh, lots of, uh, you know, I was walking out with a plastic surgeon the other day and, uh, you know, they deal with a lot of burn injuries and uh, just be, be very careful. I know a lot of people are anxious to, uh, to deal with things like burn piles in their yard uh, after the burn ban's been there for so long. Uh, don't try to accelerate that. I know a lot of people are like, well, it's been wet. I want to get it going ahead and burned up. Maybe I can put some diesel, uh, you know, or even gasoline on that. Please don't put gasoline on a burn pile. That is a dangerous thing to do. Um, and just be very careful when you're doing that. Cause we do see a lot of burns and 
uh, a lot of uh, injuries this time of year. So please be safe while you're dealing with what you need to do deal with. If you want to check us out on uh, maybe you don't have time to listen to the entire program or come in a little bit late to a discussion, you can always uh, check us out on your favorite podcasting app. You just search for Southern Remedy and you can pull us right up and listen to us at your most convenient times. A common question that I get, uh, well, two common questions. First one is, do doctors ever get sick? Yes, we do. We don't have some kind of magic formula for not getting sick. In fact, I'm dealing with a sinus infection. You may have noticed a little bit different tone to my voice, and that's why. So uh, we do get sick from time to time. We do a lot of things to try to not get sick, though. And um, I know uh, we're the world's worst with getting enough exercise. And, uh, you know, I I tell people all the time, the worst patients are doctors and right behind behind them are nurses. But... um, but we do tend to be a little bit more stubborn with things and uh, just try to push through it, which is not always the best the best advice and certainly doesn't get us well any faster. Uh, but taking care of yourself and exercising and uh, eating a good, uh, a good well-balanced meal full of fruits and vegetables is always a good thing. And speaking of that, with the second question is, are there any type of uh, additional supplements or vitamins that uh, maybe mineral supplementation that can help prevent cancers or cardiovascular disease? That is a very common question I get. Or patients that may want to substitute some of their prescription medications for uh, for uh, certain things for something else. And the United States Preventative Task Force underwent a study recently just to try to answer some of these questions. So what they did is they looked at, you know, physicians all the time. I know we get a lot of patients come in and say, hey, my Aunt Marjorie took turmeric for 20 years And uh, she never got cancer. So therefore, uh, we think turmeric is going to prevent cancer. And while that, um, you know, certainly Aunt Marjorie is doing well and doesn't have cancer, and we're thankful for that, that's not exactly the best scientific way to prove that uh, or to show, to demonstrate that turmeric is going to, or any other substance is going to prevent cancer. So there's a methodical way to do that. It takes time. It takes lots of different people. So you can't just try it on one person and say, okay, well, that worked. Let's go with it. And there's lots of other issues like safety, uh, standardization of the product that you're taking and how much of it you're getting. So lots of different questions. So the uh, the United States Preventative uh, Services Task Force, or the USPSTF, um, lots of letters there. You would think that they would give a, themselves a name years ago that's a little bit shorter than that. They evaluated 17,459 unique citations as well as 379 full-text articles. So these are articles and citations that dealt with vitamin and mineral supplementation and either cancer or cardiovascular disease prevention. And their conclusions, based on all of these clinical trials and observational cohort studies, observational cohort studies is where you take a group of people that are similar in nature, and you study them either retrospectively in the past. You look back and say, is there an association between some of the things that they did or that they were exposed to and what they had? Um, in the future, or you can take a group of people and do the same thing, but you do it prospectively into the future. So you start off with your experiment and you start as a baseline then, and then you go forward. 
in looking at all of these different uh, articles and citations, there really wasn't, there was little to no benefit in taking uh, vitamins and minerals as a standalone product. Now, certainly lots of evidence of a healthy diet, as we just mentioned, that can help prevent particularly cancers and um or at least is associated with lower risk of cancer and cardiovascular disease. Um, but there wasn't any kind of, if you take it uh, as a supplement, um, you can pick whichever one, vitamin C, vitamin D, lots of different things. There's really not a, a benefit. Now, as I tell my patients, look, there's no, there's no proven benefit from that that we have seen. But if it's not going to hurt you, I'm fine with you taking it. I just wouldn't want you to substitute that from something that does have the evidence that could help prevent cancer or uh, cardiovascular disease. And uh, always, you know, people were like, well, I want to do the natural thing. And I always say, hey, eating the foods, that's natural. Um, And getting enough exercise and uh, trying to avoid some of the things like smoking that can contribute to that. Lots of evidence with that. So. I'm with you. I want to try some natural things, too, to help prevent it. It's always better to prevent things rather than to wait and then treat them. But the best way to do that is not to take those things out of foods, but to leave them in foods and just eat a really good, well-balanced uh, you know, diet that's, that's strong in those areas. So just something to think about if you're having those questions. I know... It seems like for a lot of people, it's so easy to sort of get sucked into that. And certainly we've got a lot of direct consumer advertising and um, both on the media, TV, social media now that uh, touts, hey, this is the thing that's going to prevent cancer right here. If you do this, you'll never get cancer. So don't believe everything you see out there and uh, just try to have some common sense about it. We're going to go to Greg from Columbus. Good morning, Greg. Uh, good morning. Uh, hope everything is going well your way. Thank you. Um, just want just wanted to ask you something about two supplements. Mm-hmm. That's that Shilajit and CMOG. Uh Does it really work? Yeah, I'm not aware. I, I am aware of both of those, but because um, I had a couple of patients ask me about it, I'm not aware of any uh, added health benefits from either one of those. Um, that have been studied. And, and again, you have to you understand how, you know, you really want to do this the right way. And you would need to put at least several hundred people, preferably a thousand people on something like this at a measurable dose that's consistent from person to person. Um, you would you would first of all, you would divide up that group, half of the people taking uh, a supplement that doesn't have that in it. And then the other half that does, and nobody knows both the person giving that out nor the the participants in the study, neither group would know who's getting what. And at the end of it, then you examine, you know, are there any benefits? And those kind of studies are not really well done in this area, particularly for those two supplements. Um so there's not really any evidence there. Now, I it, last time I looked at those, as best in, in, that I can remember, there's not a whole lot of negative side effects with that. But you probably want to check with your pharmacist. The pharmacy, uh, our pharmacists are the, the best people really to, to do this in real time. If you are taking medications or have other medical problems, they usually can tell you based on the ingredients in supplements which ones may interact. And again, what I tell people, hey, if you want to spend money on it, even if it doesn't have the evidence there, 
uh, and it's not going to harm you, that's fine. I think you could do that. But uh, I'm not aware of any studies with both of those supplements that have been positive as far as any health benefits. Oh, man, I appreciate that. All right, Greg, you take care. All right, you take care. I'm going to go to Dottie from Meridian. Good morning, Dottie. Good morning. How are you? Good. Um, I'm in my car, so I hope you can uh, hear me on my hands-free. Yeah, loud and, loud and clear. I'm glad you're being yeah. safe. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> um, my question is, you were mentioning a while ago about a, uh, a diet, fruit and vegetables and stuff versus uh, supplements. My question is, with our food being like it is, with all of its genetically modified stuff and the additives and the preservatives and whatever, has the, what is it, American Medical Association, as the group of doctors or whatever, have y'all ever, when you meet and had your meetings and stuff, thought about maybe leading the charge against that kind of stuff in our food so that maybe we would get more benefit out of our food? Yeah. Or maybe I'm just reading it wrong. No, I think you're I think you're reading it right. And there are there are interest groups in those organizations within the organizations that you mentioned and others that are, you know, really bringing some some light and some attention to that. I think, um, in fact, years ago, probably one of the bigger ones that has an interest in this is the American Heart Association is just coming to mind. The AMA does, too. You mentioned American Medical Association. But, um, you know, the thought process, and I can remember uh, listening in on a conversation between some experts about what's the best strategy with with what we want to tell the public that based on the evidence that would be the best thing to eat. And, you know, I, I have heard the issue come up with genetically modified, um, uh, um, um, you know, uh, food sources and then also with additives and preservatives and then of course pesticide used to all of those can have an effect and a lot of them have big effects but the the question is okay if we want to get into that arena do we want to put the most bang for our buck in trying to get people to eat less fast foods and you know it's it's hard enough to get some people to eat any kind of vegetable and uh, it might be better to eat even one that might be genetically modified, modified rather than none. But yeah, I think all uh, like ideally, yes. What I would say is I would love for us to eat local and particularly in Mississippi. Um, and we have some great local produce uh, farmers and a lot of those are family owned too. big supporter of that. And if you find who's local, just ask them. Ask them how they grow their and what they're growing and how do they get it. And a lot of them do try to, you know, organically produce those foods and not use pesticides. I think in the next 10 to 15 years, we'll see a lot of differences in how people grow their food. Um, and uh, it'll probably change the landscape of that. And I, I th- but the, it is incredibly difficult. You know, you look at... Corn's probably a good example. So, you know, we used to have about a thousand, sort of a hobby of mine, botany, but um, we used to have about a thousand different species of, uh, or not, uh, varieties of corn in, in North America and Central America. 
Well, now we're down, if you look at the landscape, about 99% of that is like one variety, one or two varieties. Now, I'm not an expert, and if you're, you know, if you're somebody who does this, that's great. You know more than I do. No, but, no, I'm not. But, but uh, well, everybody out there listening. So uh, you and me, Dottie, we're going to comment on this. How about that? But, um, <laughs> but most of the corn grown is grown so that you can do it in mass quantities, and a lot of that, you know, like the genetically modified corn that you can spray it with glycophate, glycophate uh, uh, and it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't die, but everything else does. So uh, now you've got uh, you, you've got that chemical on the corn. You can wash it off, but it's in the soil. There's been some links in higher doses to cancer with using that as an example. So we're left with this GMO modified corn that. Uh, is been totally bred for industrial use, and we've sort of gotten dependent upon it now, and we don't really have the other varieties. And we do know that a variety of foods, you know, not just eating the same three vegetables all the time, but seasonally doing that and doing that in a in a way that, you know, looks at, at locally the food that we produce. If you eat local, that food doesn't have to be – it doesn't have to have as additives to it because it's not going to have to travel across America or travel across the world. Right. And right. Um, I, I'm not saying never eat a banana, but um, – yeah. but, but I'm saying maybe we could eat more of what we grow locally, and then you know who's growing the food and how it's being grown and, and uh, uh, harvested and, and processed for you to eat. That, that to me, is a whole lot better um, than, you know, getting it from all kinds of different areas. And, again, like there's, I, I'm, I've, I've grown a little bit of things in my own little small garden, and it is so refreshing and, and satisfying to do that. And again, in Mississippi, we can pretty much grow things year-round, even outside of the greenhouse. If you add a greenhouse to that, you certainly can grow a ton of stuff um, all year-round here. It just doesn't get cold enough to, to shut you down. I agree. I agree. But in, in my you know feeble thinking here, I was thinking, you know, what better group to lead the charge because we as the, the public, we put you guys, the doctors, you know, we kind of put y'all up on a pedestal and look to y'all knowing the information and, and having, you know, more influence than just me out there beating my drum. And I just wondered if y'all as a group ever discussed, hey, you know what, if we led this charge, we could get this accomplished faster than... You know, uh, a bunch of uh, bridge playing women out feeding the drunk. <laughs> don't and, don't uh, sell yourself short on that. I've I've seen well, a group of yeah, but old women sitting home uh, you know, sewing. I, I do sew. Okay, but uh, I just I just said you know that that y'all are such a not only a large group but an influential group that I thought maybe. You know, have y'all ever thought about that? That hey, we as a group could probably move this along. And I know it's, I know it's about money a lot of times. You know, it's the you know what they can do out there. But I just, I just think about you know that it, it probably won't ever happen in my time. But I was thinking that maybe that y'all as a big group could could lead the charge. Yeah, and let, let me add one. I think those are those are great comments, Dottie, and I, I do think they're incredibly important. Um, 
even beyond organizations of physicians in healthcare, and those are great, and they can sort of certainly set the tone. You know, the most powerful thing that we have is talking to our individual patients. And um, as a reflection of that, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago now, when I was in med school, uh, we didn't have a nutrition course. We, we learned very little about nutrition. Nutrition was taught in pediatrics, um, you know, with what are the constituents of what that, that child needs to grow and develop. But it was very rudimentary. We certainly didn't talk about it in older individuals or adults. And um, I've sort of seen that change, the landscape change in that. And, and in our medical schools now, that is a component, a required component. And the physicians that we're producing in the last 10 or 15 years have a tons of, of more knowledge and insight in healthy nutrition and the power and importance of that. And I, I'm hopeful as we sort of turn the tide away from, you know, just treating the end results of things back towards maybe a preventive stance. We've, we've got a long way to go, and I agree. It's probably going to take 20, 20, 30 years at least before as a as a culture that we uh, recognize the importance of food and diet and uh, and physical activity. I think the, the data is overwhelming that how important those things are. We just haven't adopted that. And I, I think it's going to take a lot of people. I think it's going to take physicians. I think it's going to take industry. I think it's going to take uh, everybody, even the people that are, that are in groups sitting around sewing or, or bridge clubs or at barbershops. Uh, the more we have those points where we talk about it and we raise awareness about it and move forward with a solution, I think that's gonna gonna have that's gonna have to be the way because it's way too big a problem. And you're right; it's sort of overwhelming and so easy to get processed foods that have very exactly they have very little nutritional value, but they have a high calorie right. content. And if you think about somebody, exactly. particularly who's on a limited income, and they can go and they can spend half as much buying something that has more calories that can fill them up. Uh, but maybe isn't going to, you know, from a health standpoint, it's not really going to affect them in any way. That's that's a problem. It is. It is. And, 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 and finance is like when you do want to do something different for your family and you go to buy the organic uh, food, the, the price, you know, is a factor. Yep. And I just thought if we yep. had more of it, then that would bring the price down to... You know, and I do suffer through that, but I, you know, I, I wish it was different. So. Yeah, and, and even you know, we've um, I've I've been able to do some of this in uh, in other countries too, particularly Honduras and Guatemala, and there we did some sort of food gardens to help supplement the protein and carbohydrate sources that. Uh, that that group of people that we were working with were were getting. I had to bring them up in that first, but then um, after they adopted that and had enough carbohydrate and, and protein sources in their diet, which is mainly their uh, corn and, and beans, then we began to supplement with maybe some some local home-based gardening that has lots of uh, vegetables mainly in that. And... Um, that's where you get all the things that are really that you need. That's where you get sort of the diversity of that. Um, 
and it is amazing to me, like for particularly for a family of four, you really only need about 400 to 800 square feet of area, and you can really supplement really well. I'm not talking about just putting your tomatoes out there and just having tomatoes, but you can have a variety of foods that can, again, in Mississippi, we're talking about um, probably about nine months out of the year. Uh, and those other, you know, three months, you can do some cold, cold weather crops, maybe put a couple of, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of, of shelter with those on, on some raised beds or some even some barrels or, or pots that you have. You can get a lot of supplementation in the diet just based on that. And it's very satisfying to grow your own food. Oh, yes, it is. I have done that when I had a little more flexibility. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> lately. Right. But uh, it, it is, you're absolutely right. It is it, it, very satisfying. Well, listen, I enjoyed talking to you, and I thank you for your information. And one day, maybe, we can go and find foods that aren't so, you know, full of, instead of, uh, you know, up chicken breast the size of my steering wheel, <laughs> I could... <laughs> You're right. They just keep getting bigger. I did the turkey this year, I was like, oh, my gosh. So how does this thing even walk? Um, and we didn't eat it. We ate maybe half of it. Yeah, I agree with yeah. you, Dottie. Dottie, thank you for calling, and uh, we, we appreciate you uh, participating in the program. A incredibly important topic and uh, one that we want to all move forward in, in that direction. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Been talking about lots of different things here this morning and the importance on um, prevention, but we also uh, want to leave the lines open for anything that you might be interested in, including uh, maybe it's something you've already been diagnosed with and just want a second opinion on that. You are welcome to call us this morning. In fact, we're going to go to Jack from Meridian. Good morning, Jack. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I have a question. I was recently diagnosed with neuropathy. Uh-huh. I'm not diabetic. Okay. I just wondered if there's an identifiable cause. I'm thinking possibly since I have some back issues, would would that cause this this issue with my legs and feet? Okay. And nothing in your hands, mainly just legs and feet, lower extremity? Yeah, just legs yep. and feet, right? Of course, I'm old, you know, everything's old. But uh, still. <laughs> a older is what I tell my patients, unless you get, you know, I'm not going to say what the age cutoff is, but most of the, there's a difference between old and older. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so, Jack, yeah, so neuropathy, unfortunately, affects a lot of people, and uh, diabetes is one that people are, are most, uh, you know, familiar with, and that's sort of a stocking glove distribution, so it can affect the lower extremities, particularly your feet and then your hands, too. And it's usually either a numbness by itself or it can be combined with, with some pain. In your case, since you don't have diabetes, there are some other causes of neuropathy. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of different vitamin deficiencies. I know we talked about vitamin supplementation uh-huh. uh, but uh, vitamin B12 is probably the one that stands out the most. And uh, yeah. if, if you're, it's a simple thing. You just do a blood test. If the levels are low, it's something, yeah. that, you know, just take a shot and uh, to replenish those. And uh, mm-hmm. you can uh, oftentimes cure that neuropathy pretty quickly. Uh, if that's been checked, though, and, and several other things, you know, in the bloodstream, you mentioned yeah. something that's very common, and that's the nerves that control that sensation to your lower extremities. 
if they're impinged somewhere, if they have something pushing on them anywhere right. between your spinal cord and the your feet or your legs, that can right. certainly cause that neuropathy. And that can be little bone spurs. It can be a disc between those vertebrae that's bulging out or is ruptured and is pushing on a nerve. Uh, and that can cause, again, both of those symptoms that I mentioned earlier, either pain or uh, numbness. So if you right. do know you have that, that might be a possibility. One of the yeah. ways that they can check for that, if you see a pain specialist, sometimes yeah. they can inject around that space or that area certain you know mm-hmm. things like steroids, but even like um, a lot of times they'll use it to pinpoint exactly where the, the problem is. And if you have sort of an anesthetic around that point, the pain that you have is certainly going to go down. But sometimes it can even help with that neuropathy. Neuropathy is longer changing. Like it takes a lot of time to do that. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. the longer you have it, the more chance there is of it not going away. And that's just from long-term damage to the nerves. Mm -hmm. But in the case of the back, you know, back lower back surgery is – uh, not without some risk, and it's not as effective as, say, upper, uh, like the upper part of your spine surgery with uh, things like yeah. bone spurs or or, uh, um, or disc problems. But but now we have a lot of our surgeons have a lot of different techniques, like minimally invasive surgery. So I, I would listen to them. I'd see a pain specialist about it and see mm-hmm. if they can't, you know, pinpoint that that is the cause. Yeah. There, there's a lot of other things too, and. You know, it's it's probably a list of about 10 to 15 things that you need to sort of yeah. check off before you get there. Yeah. I think uh, in one of my visits to the doctor, actually, they told me that my B12 was too high, that I should stop taking the supplements. Well, it can't uh, it can't necessarily be too high. Um, yeah. You're right. I mean, you may not need to take the supplements anymore, but um, uh-huh. B, B vitamins are really safe, and uh, you you really can't take too many of them, too much of it. Okay. It doesn't provide any positive effect, but if if yeah. you um, – you probably don't need to take it. But the excess of B vitamins uh, it is filtered out in the urine, so it's – it's not mm-hmm. a big deal. Some of the other vitamins are problems like vitamin D, E, and A. Sometimes in excessive amounts, they can they can cause some problems. But um, but yeah, you're right. It's it's if it's not if it's high, you pr- could probably just stop those. Right. Yeah, I'm taking D three every day, and mm-hmm. then my uh, fish oil. You know, I take that. That's the only thing I take in the, in the area of supplements. Right. Right. But, yeah, I was suspecting that the back. I have like spinal stenosis and a little bit of arthritis. Yep. And a bulging disc. <laughs> so you got you got three good reasons right there. Uh, yeah, why it might be having the neuropathy, particularly the spinal stenosis. So, yeah, yeah, and and spinal stenosis is one of those that once you get to a certain point, your surgeon's probably going to tell you, okay, now's the time that we probably need to do the surgery. Unless you have some, you know, some increased risk uh, for the surgery itself, but right, and that one's a little bit more effective in in some of the symptoms you're uh-huh. having, alleviating them. Is the is the spinal stenosis identifiable with an X ray? Not or necessarily with an X ray, because yeah, MRI, MRI, and the reason for that is X rays show us really good pictures of the bones. And that yeah. you could see that canal there, but we don't know like if the nerve itself is being pushed on because nerves don't show up on X-rays. 
Um, right. And MRI is the better way because MRI can so, show us soft tissue like nerves. Right. Okay, so I think I'll make an appointment with the, the, the pain center. Yeah, I would I would start there and um, and have somebody that's going to sort of orchestrate too between the pain management people because that's what they're going to be focused on is pain. Yeah. Um, and then you may need to see either an orthopedic or a neurosurgeon, you know, at some point. Uh, right. Yeah, I'm taking the uh, gabapentin like everybody else does. Mm-hmm. Yep. That, that drives me out. I'm miserable. Yeah. 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 So I think I'll go that direction. I appreciate the. Information. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. Okay. Goodbye. Have a good day. You too. Let's go to Olivia from Jackson. Good morning, Olivia. Good morning. What's your question this morning? Well, um, I so you're talking about non-GMO foods and eating locally, and um, for a while now, my family and I have three children. Um, have been eating really healthy, trying to buy local as much as possible, um, and, you know, doing everything we can that we can control, you know, filtering our water in, with reverse osmosis. Um, but I've had some funny complications outside of that that have happened at the time that I'm pregnant now, mm-hmm. again. Um, so I've just been, like, a bit anxious about it because... Um, I had to have a minor surgery of a large mass in my right breast that it, it was non-cancerous, but it needed to come out because it was completely calcified. Uh-huh. Um, and it was very large. Um, I don't want to say, you know, like a navel orange size. Ooh, wow. Um, and they, they removed this during, you know, my first trimester of pregnancy and, because I was a bit anxious of anesthesia, um, I asked if I could do it locally. And sure enough, the doctor was, you know, he was like, okay, if you want to do that, we'll do that. Um, and so they, they did it locally. And uh, I've just been having some funny complications because of that, like um, a hematoma that came in place of it. And then now a bit of, yeah, not infection, but signs that it could be going that way. Mm-hmm. So I guess I just maybe wanted to know your opinion or reassurance. Because my doctor's been very like, oh, anesthesia's not going to do anything for the baby. You're going to be good. Um, and so having, you know, a bit of second opinion is kind of nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is a, you know, concern, particularly in the first trimester, certain times, you know, certain conditions, you have to sort of weigh those risks and certainly go go through with the surgery. But so what I'm hearing is they only did the local, right? They already did the local. That was about a month ago. So. Okay. But there are they the baby afterward. Are they recommending that you have general anesthesia for a second procedure? Um. No, they were wanting to drain the hematoma oh, okay. um, a bit more, you know, directly. Still under local, but they did another local drainage. This yeah. would be the second drainage of the hematoma. Yeah, those sound like complications that are probably not from the anesthesia, the local anesthesia, and more so from the the procedure itself. Um, with any kind of mass, you can have that. As far as as, as risk to the baby, I, I don't hear anything. 
certainly, you know, they need to get the, the, if there's an infection, you need to treat that so that it doesn't spread to other areas. But um, as far as a local anesthetic, there's very little risk to, uh, to uh, you know, a baby, even during the first trimester, because that, that just, the local just stays right where it is and doesn't really disseminate to the rest of the body. So I, I think that's probably minimal risk with that or with recurrent procedures that are done under a local like the drainage should be minimal risk that's the way to go i mean that's that's the i'm sure the anesthesiologists are taking that into account um and that's that's probably the safest thing that you could do okay thank you because that's been what i'm weighing uh today it's just been whether i should just leave the hematoma to kind of resolve on its own or try to drain it again um, yeah, typically those, depending on where they are, need to be drained because they don't go away well on their own. And if you have that blood just sitting there, it is a big setup for infection. So um, okay. it, that that anywhere in the body, if that happens, particularly post-surgical, they tend to want to get the that drained out. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, Olivia. Let's go to Cindy from Benson, I believe. Good morning, Cindy. Um, I just have a question, if there's anything new in the world of chronic cough. Uh, For the last, I'd say, 13 years, I've been to lung doctors, GI doctors, allergy doctors, ear, nose, and throat doctors. The last two times I had my colonoscopy, I got them to do an EGD because I just feel like my esophagus ought to look raw in there. You know, they always say it looks fine. there's just several different types of medicine from all of those different types of doctors that they've tried, and uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It just, I just, I'm a home health nurse, so, you know, I just, all of a sudden, I'll be in a home, and I'll just have a coughing spell, and of course, nowadays, everybody thinks you're bringing COVID in the home, so I go ahead and warn them ahead of time. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and I, one time, I read a couple of books from an author in New York that really suggested low-acid foods, but if you followed what she says, you wouldn't eat hard or drink hardly anything at all. <laughs> That's right. Um, it's no fun. There's no thing that yeah. can help it. Yeah, Cindy, it, it sounds like you've run through the gamut of people and, and chronic cough. You can, like, follow this pathway through all the specialists and try to figure that out. And um, the only other person that – and this is this is from a patient that I've, I've – uh, had some contact with peripherally, but they um, ended up having an autoimmune process going on, and they were actually sort of co-diagnosed by a rheumatologist. Um, so that's another route. I'm not saying you need to go to a rheumatologist, but if it sounds to me like it's probably still triggered by something you're coming into contact with at certain times. But if you can't avoid it and you know particularly with your job going in and out of homes and um it's sort of hard to treat that and um i don't know if they already have you on things like inhaled steroids or or you know uh, something like singular too but um that's just a thought um not knowing you know sort of what tests they've done but i don't know of any other specialists that you might could go to if you really don't have any other symptoms besides that yeah, what what type of uh, autoimmune disease can be related to a cough? There's a lot, and it depends on like what's going on in the lungs themselves. Um, so you can have inflammatory changes. So if a pulmonologist has looked at you, and particularly, um, you know, if they've done a CT scan, sometimes it can pop up with changes there. 
in this patient, they did have a lot of other symptoms of autoimmune um, some type symptoms. So they, you know, it really sort of fit the picture with that. Um, and they had to sort of check off the list on everything else. But I, I don't know. I don't know that I have a whole lot if you've already seen all those people. Maybe if you go to a pulmonologist again to, and really okay. press them on it, they might can do some advanced type testing just to sort of see. Um, but other than that, I'm sort of at a loss. Okay. The last thing I did this past year, I went to a different ENT, and he ordered me some suckers that were $38 a piece. <laughs> and you just and it has xylocaine in it, and you just yeah. suck on them and wrap it up and fall. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that one. I I don't know if you tried honey. It's an old you know sort of remedy for it, but honey, particularly at night, can suppress the cough reflex. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for your help. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for calling. Okay. All right, we're going to go to our last caller, which will be Ardell from Ridge. And Ardell, we've got about maybe a minute and a half. Good morning. I'll go fast. Um, so what is the most efficient, uh, expedient way to get a DNR done on a family member that you are legally um, responsible for and they are declared to be incompetent? So that would be a discussion with their primary care physician who is, you know, in sort of in charge with things, and, and you can do that. Um, I would, uh, if you have a health care, uh, durable health care attor- uh, power of attorney, then and, and they are incompetent and cannot make their own decisions at this point, then a decision with that physician about that would be the thing to do. I would encourage you, if there are other family members that are involved in the care, even if they're not, that you discuss it with them. I've seen a lot of times where the right decisions were made about that, but there wasn't communication with other people beforehand, um, and it caused a lot of problems when it came down to to making those hard decisions. Um, And then always, you know, having the discussion with what would mom, dad, you know, whoever the patient is, what would they want if they could make those decisions? Not like right now, but if they could make them. It's always better if patients, you know, when they they did not have the incapacity that they could have those discussions with their family and say, hey, if this ever happens, I don't want to have things prolonged. I don't want to be put on a ventilator. That's nice to know. But if you don't know that, I think, you know, it just makes more sense to me to have those discussions, if you can, with other family members. Uh, It's always very difficult to do that. um, But having the communication first is much better. All right. Thank you, Ardell, for calling. We do appreciate that, and we appreciate all the calls today. Man, they were really good. Um, If you had something that maybe uh, sparks your interest to know, you can always email us. That email is remedy at mpbonline.org. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Southern Remedy is a production of MPB Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy work uh, lineup.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.